0: And I think this has been one of the most defining moments for me as well. Like once I started to respect the fact that position drives everything, right? And if you don't own position, then you're never, it doesn't matter what coaching cue you use, right? Like even if you choose the best exercises, you might see some impact in position or in performance, but until you truly own position, you're never going to get the results that you want. And no, no magical cue is going to unlock that.
1: That was Mike Robertson talking about the importance of posture and position in athletic performance training. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Freelap Timing System, GymAware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speedmat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster, and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Freelap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, And implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room the 1080 sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world and it truly represents high performance speed training i can personally attest that simply faster's customer service is second to none christopher at simply faster responds quickly to queries and anyone who makes a purchase from simply faster is in good hands if you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available stop by simplyfaster.com that's simply with an i Faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 70 of the Just Live Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today I have the pleasure of bringing you Mike Robertson of Robertson Training Systems as our guest. Mike is also the co-owner of IFAST in Indianapolis, Indiana. He does the physical preparation for the Indy 11 soccer team, amongst training many other athletes. He is also the creator of Complete Single Leg Training Physical Preparation 101, Bulletproof athlete and many others. Uh, one of the first websites that I started looking through way back when, in terms of becoming a better coach, track coach, strength coach, stronger athlete, was T Nation. And Mike Robertson was one of the very first authors I remember reading on that site. He also fast forward a decade has an amazing podcast out, which is the Physical Preparation Podcast. And he has just delivered a vast amount of knowledge to the strength and conditioning community this is his years as a coach and writer. Uh, in the past few years myself, and, and this was a big um, impetus to me asking Mike to be on the show, was I've started to attend some postural restoration institute courses and The ideas in the aftermath led me to some researching on the topics like, why do some of the best uh, linear athletes in the world, such as people like Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps, have this really bad posture? And then what does that mean for training everybody else? Or what does it mean for training team sport athletes? And in doing that, I I started coming across some of Mike's work, which is just really practical, uh, great ideas on a lot of this PRI principles. But what it means for us as coaches and trainers in light of athletic training and one of the biggest articles I read from him was encountering or assessing and training the sagittal plane first before you get to triplanar you know full-on triplanar exercises. And just going through that and a few other articles Mike had written really helped answer my questions I'd had. So I was excited to talk to him further about performance posture ideas over the course of this podcast. And if I've learned anything from great coaches in the last couple of years, you start hearing the same things over and over and over again. It's posture first, position first. Uh, that was a big Jay Schrader thing. If you look at the extreme isometrics, I get into position first, and then everything else kind of revolves around position and efficiency and position, and other things as well too. Is just like cueing athletes, like you heard in the intro, cueing athletes till we are blue in the face, but they can't get it and okay, maybe it's time to look at that the hardware problem, <laughs> like the postural problem, the breathing issues, like some of these other things that are holding the athlete back. And so Mike is just such a huge wealth of information in that regards. I also wanted to chat with him about single leg training. And ever since my podcast with Mike Boyle, I've just been like kind of on a tear of not only re examining everything I do in the weight room in that regards bilateral versus single leg and not only asking just as are things necessary in terms of bilateral, but also just looking at single leg exercises a little more deeply in terms of their benefits for athletes, their progressions, when to implement them with which types of athletes. And so Mike has, uh, again, a great product that he just released in that. It's a great wealth of knowledge in single leg training. So he's going to dive into that today. He's also going to talk a little bit about his progression and evolution in terms of maximal strength and the power lifts to where he is now in a more holistic and functional, if you will, approach. So overall, just really looking forward to getting you guys this episode. Before we get to the episode itself, again, uh, if you leave us a five-star review on itunes and we read it on the air we'll hook you up with some simply faster or just fly sports gear like a simply faster mug and so the review i'd like to read for today's episode is uh, by caleb Lepisto. Uh this was left uh, back in november 21st of last year it's uh, tons of information this podcast will join the small list of podcasts that i subscribe to it is awesome and the principles joel and his guests discuss can be applied to many different athletic populations so uh, so thanks, Caleb. We'll try to get you that little care package as soon as we can. That being said, let's get to episode 70 with Mike Robertson. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today.
0: My pleasure, man. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, it's, it's always cool to have uh, not only a great coach, but uh, another fellow podcaster on. So it's awesome to sit down and, and chat for a few minutes, get away from, I guess, our typical busy schedules.
0: It's like worlds colliding basically. You know, when you get two podcasters on the same show, it's something awesome is bound to happen,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. I'm I'm excited. Uh, for those uh who might not be familiar with you, uh, which I imagine wouldn't be too many people, uh what's your quickly, what's your background in the field and what's been new in the world of Mike Robertson?
0: Well, it's been a long and winding road, so I won't uh bore you with all the details, but got into the, the industry about seventeen years ago now in two thousand bounced around quite a bit. You know, I started off in collegiate strength and conditioning really thought that was where my future lie, but uh, you know, just didn't pan out quite that way. I spent three years doing rehab in a facility in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Wrapped that up. Wasn't really, I mean, I enjoyed my time because I learned a lot and there was a lot of personal growth, but it wasn't really the thing I was passionate about. So moved to Indianapolis, spent three years here doing in-home personal training and Kind of got me back to my roots. I was doing some high school strength and conditioning at the time, which was awesome. And really, in two thousand eight, early two thousand eight, Bill Hartman and I sat down. Uh, we'd been friends for about three years at that point in time, and you know he was working just ridiculous hours. He was managing two physical therapy clinics, working there four days a week, and the you know Wednesday Saturday he was working full time out of his his gym and his uh, in his basement. So he's working six days a week. I'm working five days a week, and I mean, in home, like you're slave to your client's schedules. So, you know, I'm working six a.m. to seven, eight p.m. a lot of days. And we just decided, man, this is ridiculous. We're gonna kind of join forces. So, in August of 2008, we opened iFast, and uh, it has been mostly puppies and balloons ever since. It's been uh, a pretty awesome ride. As far as what's going on now, I mean, just continuing the uh, the hustle because you know, obviously, I've got iFast, which is the offline brick-and-mortar training business, and then online I've got Robertson Training Systems, which is kind of my continuing education arm of my business where you know I create content, whether it's articles, videos, blogs, and I also create uh, continuing education products for trainers and coaches that want to step their game up. So always a lot going on, but uh, I don't think I would know what to do with myself if I didn't have it that way.
1: Yeah, it's so good to be busy and have your hand in a lot of things. I, I'll tell you what, I've been reading your, I remember reading your articles on T Nation back in the day. I mean, you started writing well before you started iFast, right? Or, or was Oh, it like- yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I was writing, most people don't know this, I got my first article published in like 2002 for this small uh, powerlifting magazine called Monster Muscle. I think it's now defunct, but got my first articles, started there, uh, and then 2003, just happened to go to this dietetics conference because my wife's a dietitian and go there and I meet this guy and I'm like man I know this guy he's from T Nation it was John Berardi so you know we start chatting because you know he's surrounded by you know the typical dietetics folks and here's kind of a meathead so we chatted for quite a while and he just said hey man I didn't know you know if you're an author you should uh send some articles to TC at T Nation tell him I sent you and I bet uh, I bet he'd publish some of your stuff so Really, uh, a life-changing moment for me because, man, T Nation is quite literally how I got my start. So I'm just impressed that uh, people still know about T Nation and read my stuff there. It's been a while.
1: Yeah, or, did, or before it was T Nation, was it like T Meg or T Muscle or, or, or it had some yes. different name back? Those are the golden days back then.
0: I, I look back very fondly because you know I understand like they're they're a business, right? And they sell supplements, but man, I really think when i was there and i'm biased but i feel like there was just so many great authors i mean you think about ian king started there charles poliquin two guys that kind of really were at the forefront of physical preparation and strength and conditioning as we know it today but then you think christian thibodeau eric cressy who has obviously done some pretty darn big things you know i was writing at that time i mean there were just a lot of really talented people dave tate um Alan Cosgrove, there's just so many talented people that have gone on to have great success in the fitness industry. It was a really cool time to be a part of T Nation.
1: Yeah, my early and mid 20s, man. I mean, that was like every day I was kind of looking up to see what was the new with the new stuff there. And yeah, those guys, yeah, yourself, Eric Cressy, Thibodeau, like uh, those are were some of the classic articles that were part, a big part of my formation. How, how do you feel like, too, and kind of, I ask this as a little bit of a writer myself, but how do you feel like your writing uh, helped you as a strength coach, like in terms of just putting your mind to paper and those types of things?
0: Man, it's made such a massive improvement, and I know probably a lot of coaches don't want to hear this, or they don't fancy themselves as writers, but man, I tell you what, I hated English class growing up. Like, I hated it with a passion. And I was always a math science guy. My dad is like a physics astronomy background, so he's a science guy. Like I hated writing, but it was something that I always felt somewhat oddly compelled to do because I felt like I had a strong voice. I felt like I'd made a lot of mistakes and I wanted people to learn from my mistakes and and see better results. And I tell you what, it's made such a profound impact on me because it does two things. Number one, it clears up your communication skills like if you can be concise in an article, then you can probably be really clear and concise when you're communicating with a client or an athlete in the gym. So the communication skills really, really help you out as a coach. And the second thing I think it does, it really helps streamline and organize your thoughts. A lot of times as a trainer or a coach, you've got a lot of thoughts, you got a lot of ideas bouncing around in your head, but they're not really like sorted and organized. You know, I kind of think of it as like the old school Dewey Decimal System, right? Like regardless of if you knew how it worked, like you could always go find a book based on the system, right? And I think that's really important for us as coaches. We need to figure out and sort and organize all of our thoughts and, and, you know, what's really relevant to us as coaches. And once you start to kind of carve out and develop your own philosophy and your own system, it really takes your entire programming and coaching game to the next level.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think that, uh, my own writing has certainly made me a lot better. I'm I'm the same boat, man. Like I was not a fan of English class. Uh, I think I was like, okay. My mom was like a, a elementary school teacher, and so she made sure I learned all my letters and and phonics really early and all that type of thing. But once I, it wasn't like exciting to me. And I it is it is interesting now. Like once you actually start being able to put your thoughts on paper and 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 how you structure articles is kind of it is kind of fun once you actually do it in something that you're passionate about in strength and conditioning and physical prep and and that I, it's interesting how it does change it, but I, I'm definitely in the same boat. I wasn't like, I definitely wasn't like stoked to walk in the door for English class in high school by any means.
0: Right. And I think so many of us too, it's like, if you write, or if you create a podcast or you shoot videos, like, it's not like a lot of us are in this to be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to make so much money doing this. Right. You do it because you feel compelled to share the things that you've learned. And I think that's, what's really cool about it because there's a lot of altruism in that world like for me you know if i write for t nation i'm going to get a paycheck but i could write a thousand blogs for my website and maybe i sell some product maybe i don't but i would probably do it anyways because that's just part of who i am like i just enjoy educating people helping them better understand how the body works how they can train more effectively so i think that's what's really fun about it is just taking what you've learned and passing it on to others
1: yeah, man, I, I I agree. I all those things uh, I've I've definitely enjoyed about it as well. And that process, just being able to put your thoughts on paper and someone getting something out of it is just so it's just cool. It's always been a yes. cool thing. Uh, Absolutely. I, w- I wanted to ask you too. Uh, just what's your? I know your uh, background is in powerlifting, uh, but also like, did you? Uh, what were some sports you played in high school? Like growing up athletically, and how has that impacted you as you've moved along as a physical prep coach?
0: Yeah. So I went to a really small high school and most people are like, yeah, yeah, like really small. So to give you some context, I graduated with 47 kids. So my high school was about 200 kids total. And the school that I went to K through 12 was all in one building and there were 450 kids. Right. So like most of the high schools around here, that's not even the size of their freshman class. So really small high school. But the benefit to me was that I got to play a ton of sports at a decent level, right? So in high school, I played baseball, I played basketball, I played volleyball, I ran cross-country, mostly because the the basketball coach was the cross-country coach, and uh, he mandated it to make sure that we were in shape for basketball. So I played all those sports in high school, um, and that's on top of, like, before that, like, played Pop Warner football, I played soccer in the YMCA, like, I was just one of those kids, if it was a sport, And it involved a ball. I probably wanted to play it. And I think what that's done for me is it gives me a tremendous amount of practical perspective on the needs and demands of sport. Because I've played a lot of them, right? Like, I've never played extremely high-level football, but I at least have an understanding of what the game is like. Um, And the same goes for soccer and basketball. So I think too often people just assume, like, oh, I watch the game and I understand it. And I think it's such an important thing. It's just like being a coach. You need to train. You need to keep yourself in shape. You need to work out because it gives you context as to how workouts go and feel. But the same thing with sport. Like, I think the better you understand your sport, the more you play a sport, the better understanding you have of what it takes to be successful. So, I mean, the sports that I've gravitated to working with the most are basketball, which is something I played quite a bit of, and soccer. Soccer, I didn't get to play a ton growing up, mostly because we didn't even have it in high school as a sport until I was a senior. But it's something that I played a lot growing up before that. It's something I played all throughout college as far as intramurals go. So I think the better understanding you have of the needs and demands of any given sport, the easier it will be for you to carry that over and be successful
1: when it comes to coaching that sport. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster i i love that i i totally agree and i i'm starting to kind of get in this my um uh, inquisitiveness i guess you could say especially uh, some of the interns i see come through like uh trying to find like a lot of them you know it's like they just love they have a passion for the olympic lifts and and the power lifts and I'm like that's cool but uh, do you have a passion for you know, human movement? Have you been there? Can you demonstrate <laughs> right. a sprint well? Do you know what's going on in, in, in that and like change of direction and what, what our demands are going to be? And I was just having this kind of conversation, a friend of mine, Paul Cater, are going back and forth and, and working a little bit of an article on uh, the, uh, basically the ability to demonstrate obviously not just the the lifts, but how to move correctly and having a passion for movement, not just a lift or two or something like that.
0: And that's that's probably one of the biggest reasons I, I've moved away from powerlifting. Um, part of it is just a time-based thing. I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of time to go through a, a solid powerlifting session and to be successful in that sport that I just don't have right now. But for me, you know, working with athletes, like, I don't necessarily want to look or move like a powerlifter, right? Because if you want to be a high-level powerlifter, that's fine. There's sacrifices that need to be made with regards to mobility, with regards to performance, right? So I'm just not willing to make those sacrifices at this stage in my career. Like, I'd rather be decently strong, um, but also have good mobility. I would love being able to demonstrate, you know, whether it's linear speed, whether it's change of direction, whether it's jumping, you know? I, I'm kind of a jack of all trades at this point, and it really helps me with my athletes because even at 39 years old, I can still demonstrate pretty much everything with pretty good proficiency.
1: Yeah, that's that's awesome stuff. I've I've thought of very similar kind of things. I mean, I'm I'm thirty four right now and kinda of getting I'm certainly out of the high performance years as far as my sport with track and field is <laughs> concerned, and not jumping and those types of things. But I still it's almost like there's a little bit of a pressure at times to kind of fall into the more typical uh, strength coach, you know, powerlifting, bodybuilding, Olympic lifting, which is all good. I mean, I like each of those yep. disciplines I want to be fully proficient at, but I still I still want to train. For me, I still train for kind of vertical jumping is still the end game, but I still want to use everything else. But I feel like if I was, every time I just go into those those lifts full force, I actually feel like I lose a lot of my athleticism. and. And I always want to be kind of well-rounded. So I I definitely resonate with that. For sure. Uh, so uh, getting into some trading talks and those types of things. Uh, one of the articles that you wrote, and I, I got a lot out of this, and I actually had read it coming fresh off of some PRI seminars. But it's the idea of – uh, sagittal plane first in training. And yep. how does that how does that shake out with you in terms of training athletes? So they come in, uh, you're kind of assessing them and progressing them. Uh, could you give a little bit of a background on, on what that means with the sagittal plane first and some anecdotes with how you might utilize it with your athletes?
0: Great question, first of all. So, you know, I think one of the biggest things that people intuitively realize is that sports are multi-planar, right? Like we can all agree that Sagittal frontal transverse like most sports are going to require you to access all of those The downside is a lot of our athletes are so Extended and what I mean by that is You imagine the anterior pelvic tilt the deep lower back position sometimes an anterior weight shift They're so extended and so sagittally oriented that what happens is they lose access to their frontal and their transverse planes so You can try and train in those planes And you may see some degree of success, but the way you're going to move, you're going to be forced to compensate. You're not going to have a true frontal plane or a true transverse plane until you unlock the sagittal plane first. So for me, one of the first things I'm almost universally chasing with my clients and with my athletes is control of that sagittal plane. And to start, you got to have abs and you got to have hamstrings. So if you think about kind of this tug-of-war going on at your pelvis – Too often, the hip flexors and the lower back are working together on opposite sides of the body to pull the pelvis up and to extend the lower back, right? And and to rewind just for a second, what drives us there is stress, you know? And stress could be any number of things. It could be training stress. It could be my girlfriend just broke up with me stress. It could be money stress. Like, stress drives us into that position. And then alterations to your breathing pattern lock us there, all right? So when I start in this extended pattern, And then I continue to breathe there. Well, now I'm using different muscles to help me breathe, right? I'm going to use my abs, my lower back, my pecs, my lats, all these accessory muscles to help me breathe. So to unwind that, I need my abs and my hamstrings to reposition my body. Abs and hamstrings pull our pelvis back up underneath us. They pull our rib cage down, back, and in. And what that does is it restores position of the rib cage, of the pelvis, it repositions the diaphragm, so now that can be my primary muscle of respiration. and I don't have to hang on my, my hip flexors and my lower back and my pecs and my lats, or maybe even my neck muscles hmm. to help draw air into my body. So that's kind of the starting point. I need to reposition them first, and this is something that, that PRI has talked about for years. Like You have to reposition first, and then from there, now I need to work on controlling that position. Right. And, and that's kind of a really loaded topic. There's a ton that goes into that it could be, you know, the positions of the body uh, that you train people in. it could be how you manage load. Like, for instance, we'll do a lot of uh, reaching based work, whether it's push ups, whether it's anterior loaded squatting variations or lunging variations, things that are just going to reinforce good position of the rib cage in the pelvis. So that's kind of the starting point. You have to own your sagittal plane first. Once you unlock that, once your athletes can own that, now you can start exposing them to the frontal and the transverse plane, and you know they're actually going to be doing it in the right way. Because, you know, again, if you don't own your sagittal plane first, sure, you can move in your frontal and transverse planes, but it's not going to be authentic or true motion. You're going to have to find ways to cheat or to compensate to do it. So for me, it always comes back to sagittal plane first. Can your clients, can your athletes own it? Can they control it? And once they do, like check that box and then you can move on to training in multiple planes.
1: Yeah, I, that uh, that really hit home for me uh, coming off the PRI course and then reading your article. And I was working with an athlete one day and I was trying to get him to do some uh, frontal plane, like hip hiking type movements, like walking. And he was going to hip hike and try to elevate his his swing knee hip and, and, yeah. and that, and I'm watching him do it. And I'm like, wow, you really cannot get this. And I'm, so I'm like trying to use a few cues and it's not working. And then I, I kind of look at his, his thorax and I realize like, uh, I think uh, James Anderson, apparently call like Scooby-Doo dog dish guy a little bit. Like his, <laughs> he's got between his shoulder blades. He's like compressed. And, and I'm like, there's, yeah. I, don't, I just think his thorax isn't going to let him move in this way. I'm trying to coach him. And that was a really, um, that was a really big moment for me because I'm just like, how much are we – it's almost like are, are we pissed in the wind sometimes with all these cues? <laughs> if if it, the heart of it all, the guy doesn't have the sagittal plane and the breathing and, and the thorax position.
0: Look, you're absolutely right. So much of it is based on position, and and I think this has been one of the most defining moments for me as well. Like once I started to respect the fact that position drives everything, right? And if you don't own position – then you're never it doesn't matter what coaching cue you use. Right. Like even if you choose the best exercises, you might see some impact in position or in performance. But until you truly own position, you're never going to get the results that you want. And no, no magical cue is going to unlock that. You have to address position first and then you can start to put the other pieces in motion.
1: Yeah. So, how does that? Uh, that's awesome. By the way, I, I really. I, the more I've, especially the last few years, I the I just been hearing it more, and it's been connecting all these these chain links and of uh, position, yep. position, position being the most important uh, thing, and doing that, mastering and owning that before you really move on. Uh, how does that shake out? Like a guy comes in your facility, starts training, and he's like got anterior pelvic tilt, the ribs are flying out in front, and I, are you, uh, how are you? What's kind of your initial? Uh, treatment or, or extra progression for that type of athlete? I'm sure there's like a million exercises, but maybe if you could keep it uh, simple and yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah, no, great question. So a lot of times, first and foremost, it depends on the athlete, right? Because extension isn't a bad thing. And this is what people get confused by. Like if you have on the most extreme example, like an Usain Bolt, right? Like this is you're you're a sprinting coach, so look that guy's going to have a deep back. He's going to have an anterior pelvic tilt. So the goal isn't to make this guy perfect, because that takes away from his ability to perform at a high level. So for him, all I'm going to do is give him enough pelvic control so that he can train at a high level without breaking down, right? So he's a little bit different versus say if I'm working with a cornerback, where they need to be able to get their pelvis underneath them, right? So like. Extension is great for sagittal plane. That's why all great sprinters, all great power lifters, Olympic lifters, things that are very sagittal dominant, right? They're going to be in that extended position. It, it behooves them because it helps make them fast and strong and explosive. But where this really manifests itself is when athletes need to be able to break down and change direction. So to do that, now they need the opposite. They need to get their pelvis to posteriorly tilt a little bit or at least get back to a more neutral position so they can lower their center of gravity so they can internally rotate their hips and they can change direction so you know that's kind of the starting point is who is this athlete what are the needs and demands of their sport and how far on this you know spectrum of extension are they and then how far do i need to bring them back so that's kind of my starting point of you know like when i when i lay out the program where where do they start and where do i need to get them and then from there you know kind of like i alluded to before We're going to start off with some basic resets. Generally, we're going to chase some abs. We're going to chase some hamstrings, try and get the thorax back, get the pelvis underneath them, shift the center of gravity back. And then from there, the big emphasis is going to be on, okay, now once I've got position, can I use the right strength training exercises to maintain and hold that position throughout the course of a workout? So that's why I'm such a big fan now of anterior loaded lifts. Whether it's two kettlebell front squats, you know, single leg split stance exercises, tons of reaching exercises where again I'm driving the thorax back, opening up the back side of the body, a lot of isolation ab work, even though I know a lot of people poo-poo that. I think there's a lot of value in that, especially early on in getting somebody just a basic set of abs, teaching them to actually get their abs to turn on and get their thorax and their pelvis facing each other again is absolutely critical. So I don't know if that's exactly what you are looking for, but you know, it doesn't look sexy, right? It's a lot of very basic stuff. It's basic retraining of holding position, then developing better movement skills while holding what I consider to be a better position. And if they can do that, then we can just progress on the move from there.
1: No, that's that's a great answer. And actually, what you said—the very first thing you said—helped answer something I've been considering a lot lately. Which is like, yeah, look at Usain Bolt or or Elaine Thompson or I mean, really a lot of those Jamaican sprinters, if not all of them, uh, they all have that that uh, convex spine and anterior pelvic tilt, and it helps them to get a massive push and helps them to blow away people in sprinting. And I would always kind right. of thought, you know, I'm, I'm going through these seminars and putting some thoughts together, and I'm like, well, if that makes you fast, like that's why are you going to try to to fix that per se. But what you said in terms of being a team sport athlete and being able to move, uh, you know, it, laterally and, and rotate, then now that piece starts to come together and it makes more sense. Uh, and yeah. so that's like, that's gold right there. That was really something that was really interesting.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So again, and, and maybe it's something that you don't have to worry so much about early, but as their career progresses, right. So, you know, I'm by no stretch the imagine like some elite, uh, historian of track and field, but like, you look at Usain Bolt and like the last year or two, it seemed like he started dealing with a lot more injuries. Yeah. So maybe it's something where he got so extended, he got to that point where he reached threshold and now he can't stay healthy. So maybe he needs it more now, yeah. you know? So, I mean, and that's just the biomechanical piece. I mean, we're not even talking autonomics yet. Sympathetic, parasympathetic balance. Like, you know, the other side of that is if somebody's so sympathetically toned up, you know, they can't sleep, they can't recover from training. Well, that's Maybe another reason where I would look at more aggressively trying to use some of these tools in the toolbox to shut off some of that tone, to shut off some of that parasympathetic, or excuse me, to shut off some of that sympathetic tone just so I can help kickstart the recovery process. Because quite simply, we have a lot of people where biomechanically, they're kind of a mess, right? And we know that. But for a lot of my end user population or just like my my gen pop clients, so much of it is just like stress related if i can just get them to shut off a little bit and tone out tone down and relax it's amazing how much better they feel so you can look at it from the biomechanics perspective you can look at it from the autonomic perspective but i think as long as you know the needs and demands of this person's life and then you can figure out where they're at on the spectrum you can detail a pretty good program to get
1: them from point a to point b you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, that's that's great stuff as well. I actually have a couple quick uh, follow up uh, questions or comments off that. First, uh, how you're talking about Bolt, I mean, he ran his lifetime best, at, it was like 22 or 24, and then it was kind of this slow regression and decline since then. And, and, I was actually watching, it was after a PRI seminar or something, I was watching his race when he set the world record, and then one of his more recent ones, just to watch his like chin position and his head position yep. uh, relative to that extension pattern, and you could see that when he set the world record, his chin was, it almost looked as if it was down a little bit more, much more stable, and when he was kind of falling off in his later years, it was kind of more up and variable and bouncing around, and I was like, I think that's related. I uh, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, obviously, it's easy to say oh, Oh, yeah. Well, if he did this, he would be. I mean, everyone wants right. to say that, right? I don't want to be necessarily right. insinuating, but I did find it interesting.
0: Oh, for sure, for sure.
1: Uh, and then uh, what you said too, I, and this this makes me think as well. Like, uh, it, just because you get by with it early, doesn't mean you're going to be great later. And I see it a lot. Like athletes who lifted really heavy in high school and had some success. And then it's like you, when you first achieve success, you want to replicate that. But if you keep replicating this, you know, going, taking it to the house and the power lifts and, and getting that sympathetic <laughs> overload, eventually it does catch up to you. And I, I found it, I, I'm glad you brought that up and it reminded me of that as well. And kind of formulated some new thoughts on my end.
0: Yeah. I think Boosh Exnator said this a couple of years ago at our physical prep summit that, you know, like, especially the squat is great up to a point, but the heavier you go and you see this, especially with power lifters, like, They get more efficient. They get better at grinding. So, what happens is bar speed slows down, right? And we know the transfer is probably not going to be as good to sport performance. But something that he mentioned as well is that you get to a point where you're squatting so heavy that it actually alters or deteriorates your coordination. And it didn't make perfect sense to me at the time, but now it makes a lot more sense, you know, as I'm working with more athletes. Like, I think, you know, those first two to three years are really. Developmental and formative when it comes to strength training and building that nice solid foundation, but after that, I think a lot more of it should be focused on, you know, creating max force output, um, combining uh, the mass on the bar with the the pace at which you're moving the bar, versus just constantly chasing more and more weight, because there's just so many detriments to that, especially for competitive athletes. I think after about probably three, two to three years of a really good base. You know, continuing to chase max effort strength is not going to give you the gains that you're looking for with regards to your athletes.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree, man. I I think that's that's a great example too, bringing that up with what Boo was saying. I I really like that a lot. I like the shift. He's kind of smart. Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> he's kind of smart. Yeah, he's. I think we've both. He's he's been on both of our podcasts, so I. That's, yeah. That's very cool. It was, I love
0: Boo. He's he's a wonderful human being and a very very good coach.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so switching gears off a little bilateral, bilateral sagittal plane ideas. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about single leg training. Uh, yes. I, I know you have a new product out as well. So, uh, if you want to maybe touch on that for a couple of minutes and then talk about your take on single leg training versus bilateral training, uh, in novice versus advanced athletes. So, you know, yeah. as you get athletes across the spectrum. How are you looking at the single versus double leg lifts as they move through their, their career?
0: Yeah. And and there's so many ways you can take this. Right. Like like I think the most obvious and and part of the reason that I love to talk about this is because so many people just look at it from a reductionist approach. Right. And they say, oh, well, my back hurts when I squat and it feels okay when I do a lunge or a single leg squat. So I'm going to go there. Right. And they never ask the really big question of, well, why does my back hurt when I squat? So like that's part of why I do this, because. You know, look, you can switch from a squat to a split squat or a lunge, and it's not better or worse, right? It just gives you different kind of physiological tools or different biomechanical tools. And and so like one of the things that I love about Stu McGill is, you know, he's always questioning these things and he's somebody I brought on my show and he said, "Look, now the thing that we're seeing is people move away from the back squat and they're doing more lunges and now we're seeing more issues with like the SI joint." So you got to understand there's pros and cons to everything. And when it comes to single leg and split stance work, I think probably the biggest benefit that you're going to see is an improvement or a restoration of movement variability. So in my world, if I'm thinking about how I lay out a program, uh, I use what I call the R7 approach. So like R4 is my resistance and my power work. R5 is my resistance and R6 is my conditioning. So when I'm going hard with an athlete with their reactiveness, their explosiveness, their speed work, um, when I'm doing some heavy work in the gym, that's naturally going to move them into a more sympathetic dominant state, a more extension dominant state. So one of the things that I'm trying to do as they go through the session is unwind a little bit of that, right? So I think one of the best things that you can do as a physical preparation coach is incorporate split stance and single leg work because it starts to restore, you know, some of your, number one, it restores your sagittal plane, which we already talked about, but it also exposes your athlete to the frontal and transverse planes and being able to own and negotiate movement in those planes because a lot of times just because somebody has to do that in sport doesn't mean they necessarily do it well. So I'm always a big believer that one of the best things that we can do in the weight room when things are slow and controlled, is teach our athletes how to move better. We can give them a better context of what quality movement should look and feel like. So I think that's the biggest benefit of single leg and split stance work in the gym. Now, if we're talking about carryover, you know, I think a lot of times I start my athletes with, say, their, their power work and their strength work on two legs – And then as we develop an athlete, as they understand that stabilization and control in the gym where it's a slower and more controlled environment, now we can get more dynamic and more explosive with their power work, which we know in a lot of sports, you're not in a parallel stance, right? Maybe if you're doing a a two-legged jump in basketball or in volleyball, you're going to jump off two legs. But a lot of sports, you're in an offset position or you're in kind of a, a position where your feet are out wide. So... Now we can start to express some of those movements within our power. But it, to me, it always comes back to you have to layer everything that you do, right? You have to build quality movement first before you start layering in elements of speed, power, explosiveness, or managing fatigue as you would in a conditioning session.
1: Yeah, I like. Uh, man, that's just such an awesome. Like everything you say, kind of always brings me back to something and connects dots for me. And uh, speaking of T Nation, right, Ian King, back when, back in the, the day, right. Yeah. I, I think I remember hearing article uh, or reading an article of his on single leg versus double leg training, and this was before I knew anything of PRI and those types of ideas. But like, I think it was as simple as bilateral uh, sagittal plane is going to put you in a little anterior tilt, and single leg helps to do a little bit more posterior so he as simple as that that was his idea there i mean would you say that's like absolutely pretty accurate there in terms I, of what you're talking about
0: absolutely and i mean and if somebody does tend to stay in that anterior tilt even in those positions again give them a goblet like put put the kettlebell oh, in front yeah. of their body give them a little bit of abs and now all of a sudden you've got this really clean body position right and it just does so many good things like i think too often when we get into the gym and we start chasing just numbers, right? And there's nothing wrong with it. Like, I chased powerlifting for years. But, like, if you only chase numbers and you don't do some of this accessory work, that's when your body starts to break down, right? That's when all of a sudden you're you're in this really extended position that you can't control. And now your back hurts or your hip hurts or your knee hurts. So doing some of these little things, I think, over the course of your training career can do such – wonderful things as far as keeping you healthy and in the game for the long haul. And I don't know, at my age, I I have definitely not seen it all, but I've seen enough to know that I'm always going to hedge my bets and use things such as single leg and split stance exercises in my programs because they're my insurance policy and they're what kind of give me that freedom to push certain areas of the program because I know I've got that insurance in there to help keep my clients and my athletes moving and feeling well.
1: Yeah. Uh, I like to think of that as insurance policy. It's almost like if you, the further you go into the bilateral sagittal, it's almost like you're 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 putting a little bit of a risk out there. There's maybe a little more risk reward in there, and then you can moving back to the 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 safe realm of the single leg when you need to. Would you say that's a a good a way of putting it as well?
0: Absolutely. I mean, literally, I just did a talk about accessory lifts and why we use them, and I think that's one of the biggest reasons we use accessory lifts is because it restores movement variability. It unlocks us a little bit. It gets us out of that sagittal plane or teaches us how to manage the sagittal plane better so that we can stay healthy. Because, look, it, when you start pushing, the the natural tendency, if you start pushing very heavy weights, um, if you start running very fast, jumping very high, like you're going to trend to the sagittal plane and you're more likely to break down, right? Like, And that's okay. This just hedges our bets and helps us make sure that we're doing some things to help keep us healthy and maintain that movement variability because the last thing you want to do is get so locked up and so extended that your body breaks down. And I've seen this across sports, whether it's, you know, high-level track and field, power lifters are some of the worst, you know, because everything they do is so sagely dominant. I mean, I've evaluated the shoulders of, like, some of the best bench pressers in the world, and you may not be shocked, but, I mean, we're talking guys that have, you know, should have... 180 degrees right a healthy shoulder has 180 90 30 as little as zero degrees of shoulder rotation because they're so locked up in that sagittal plane.
1: oh man that's that's crazy yeah it, it reminds me of just so many things too i had mike boyle on the podcast not too long ago it's kind of like some of that stuff like he said it's like you're slamming your hand in a car door over and over getting, <laughs> keep, you know, and wondering why it hurts yeah i wonder you know. why well why why is this why is my shoulder messed up i, I don't know right Right. <laughs> uh, it's in the terms of uh, just maybe just talking speed, so, so a lot of you know, people out there, maybe track coaches listening to this, people who just are like linear speed, um, what's your take on the balance or, or some things to consider in single leg, which people would think single leg speed, maybe more specific velocity, obviously not so much, but uh, single leg versus bilateral movement lifts, and people who just want to get fast linearly?
0: So here, here's my, like, defining statement on this. Like, ultimately, they're right. Like, if you want to be fast on one leg, at some point you need to train on one leg. Like, specificity always reigns king. Now, the downside to this is, number one, just the, the ground contact times are so incredibly short, right? It's hard to mimic that in the gym. But here would be, like, my overarching statement. It's like you have to earn the right to train explosively on one leg. So don't, don't just assume that because they run fast that they really own single leg stance or that they're really clean in single leg or split stance postures in the gym. So again, I think that's the value of this, like slow it down, make them own it, make them control it in the gym, right? Because the better they own it in that position, now you can start building uh, levels to that. So now you can start adding speed or you can start adding complexity so now your split squat can become a lunge and your lunge can become a scissor jump and that can turn into various bounding or, you know, different kinds of acceleration postures or drills, right? Like just think of it in that, that way, like you're always trying to layer and build a better functioning athlete. And so that's kind of the way I think about it. You have to earn the right to train and be explosive on one leg. So if you want to reverse engineer it, where would you start? Right. And and if you can do that and if you can be successful in the gym and then start layering from there, I think ultimately your sprinters are gonna be more successful in the long run.
1: You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, that's really cool. I uh I like the idea of earning. Yeah, you got to earn it. I think that's that's such a cool statement. It really changes so many aspects of how you think about progression in the program. I uh, I've been playing around a lot lately this year, last year especially with uh, Jay Shred- the old Jay Little Jay Schrader Extreme ISO Lunge Position, oh, yeah. and having yeah. that be the starting point, point. and it's been really cool. Like it's opened my eyes to a lot of things I wouldn't have probably noticed otherwise. Starting there,
0: oh, you you would be shocked. Like I always joke around, and I'm not really joking, but like I could crush most people even high-level athletes with their body weight, you know, just by teaching them the right movement positions, by really owning where their body is in space, getting them to move into areas or spaces where they haven't uh, necessarily been before. I mean, look, I don't think you need external load all the time. Like, I'm sure somebody will bash me for saying that, but like anything else, you have to earn the right to go through a bigger range of motion, to add load, to add speed, to add complexity, so don't just assume because somebody's a high level athlete on the track on the court on the field that they necessarily move very well. Like I always look at that as low hanging fruit. If I can teach an athlete to be more efficient, to move more effectively, like that's easy for me because that that's going to unlock their natural athleticism that they have stored away that they don't even know they have. Right? So before I'm going to chase speed or complexity or load I'm going to teach an athlete to move really well first and then build from that.
1: Yeah, the more the more great coaches I talk to, the more I keep hearing that, and and it makes so much sense. And it's like, especially too, I think as we as coaches get old and broken, and we go to a seminar and someone kind of you know teaches us something or puts us uh, through a, a restoration routine, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, I feel like I did five ten years ago. This is amazing. Like, yes. And then we think about yeah, how as athletes we just kind of let the wheels. If we wouldn't have been letting those wheels fall off over time, you know, maybe. Uh, I mean, it's always obviously. I think it's the failure is certainly certainly a good part of the process. But um, I I totally resonate with that. I, I love that statement. Yeah, I
0: think I think if you're not learning from your failures and if you're not trying to pass that wisdom on to your athletes, you're doing them a disservice. That's that's why we're coaches and that's why we're ultimately successful at what we do because we've had all that experience and we've seen and worked with so many different people. We've got perspective that they just can't possibly have at 21 or 22 years old.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, In terms of, we've been talking about it uh, on and off a little bit here, so maybe we can make this the actual question, but uh, when it does come time to get strong, uh, what's your take on going about that? So are there any reference or or strength to body weight points you like to see in some particular movements, and how do you go about choosing which movements those will be?
0: You know, I don't know if there's definitely – there's any kind of points that I'm necessarily looking for, right? And, and just so you kind of have my overarching philosophy, I look at myself very much uh, as a GPP coach, right? So I'm trying to give a better overall athlete back to the coach, you know, from off season to preseason or whenever they report back. So I look more at, like, just pure measurables, right? So, like, am I improving their 10-yard dash? Am I improving their vertical jump? Am I improving their ability to move side to side, and it's a little bit more qualitative, but or yeah, qualitative. But am I improving their movement quality? Because I feel like if I improve their movement quality, their position, they're less likely to break down. So I'm looking more in those regards. And you know, again, you might be shocked because there's there's certain athletes where, like I've got one kid in particular, like he is a toned up bro, like he is very extended, but he's a very high level athlete. Um, and so all I'm doing right now is just milking kind of the slow roll with him. He's getting ready to go in season. So if you looked at his program, you'd be like, this is it. I mean, he's doing like a heavy goblet squat, um, because it helps open up the backside of his body. It's cleaned up his squat pattern. I mean, this kid could not squat to save his life before. So like teaching this kid to squat, we're doing some split stance and single leg work to give him some side to side control. His... He's very kind of stuck on his right side, and he's got this really wicked torque through his right knee. So we're doing a lot of stuff in single leg and split stance, trying to build him a right glute, trying to get him to control the right side of his, his hip and his pelvis better. Uh, we're doing some push-ups to open up the backside. I mean, there's nothing really exciting about his program, but it's it's chasing that efficiency first, right? So I'd say that's the biggest thing for me. I don't really, I'm not tied or married to any sport or to any lifts. But if you look at it across the board, pretty much every athlete that I work with is going to have a squat of some sort in their program. That's going to lead off one day in the gym. Uh, They're typically going to have one bench press day. Again, I'm not married to the barbell or any any certain variation. It's what I feel works best for them. And there's generally going to be a deadlift variation. And I really kind of lean most on the trap bar. The biggest question is, you know, for my taller guys, am I going to elevate them? Which if they're over 6'5", 6'6", the answer is typically yes. Or are they going to do it from the ground? Um, But for me, I'm not married to any specific variation. I'm not necessarily married to any specific strength to body weight ratio. It's more about progression in those lifts, not just in the weight they use, but in the quality of the movement. And then ultimately, I'm always leaning on those baselines of you know, their 10-yard, their vertical jump, um, their their four-jump test. If those numbers are going up and their quality of their movement is improving, then I'm a happy camper. And I know ultimately when they go back to camp, their coach is going to be happy as well.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, even something as simple as a vertical jump, too. If, you're, if your vertical jump got three inches better, then you got stronger, you know, specifically. Right, <laughs>
0: right. And, and, and that's something – it's interesting because I've worked with a lot of basketball guys this last year and, and a lot of basketball coaches, it, it this is a very taboo topic. It's like either, you know, basketball coaches 100% believe in training the vertical or others totally don't believe in training it and just letting it happen. And I found that a lot of my basketball guys, number one, they don't mind training it, right? Because ultimately they all want to jump higher. <laughs> oh, like yeah. it sounds silly, but like a sprinter wants to run faster, right? Like every basketball player wants to jump higher. So if I can show measurable changes in their vertical jump, especially in, say, a four, six, eight week period, they're much more likely to buy in and do the other things that I ask them to do because they know like this guy knows what he's talking about, like I'm seeing improvements. So I think those measurables to them are so much more tangible than saying, oh, hey, bro, look, you added 30 pounds to your squat this offseason. Good for you. (laughs) Like, that's cool, but it's not nearly as cool and it's definitely not as relevant to them as seeing a massive increase in their vertical jump, which they know will carry over to their sport.
1: Oh, yeah. It's like uh, they say a lot. Tony Holler says this a lot at the track football consortium or track speed consortium in Chicago is like the the football scouts care a lot more that you ran 1040 in the 100 dash in high school than you had the thousand pound club shirt or whatever. Like
0: (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs)
1: That's uh, that's the game changer. Uh, awesome. How do you has your view changed much? I mean, has there been like key points over your your career as a physical prep coach where you've like 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 thought gotten away from? Uh, has it always been like that? Have you gotten away from that over time or how have, kind of has there been shifts along the way?
0: Oh, shoot. Absolutely. I mean, full transparency. There was a long time where I thought the power lifts could cure you know, not only being weak, but cancer, AIDS, just about any (laughs) communicable disease, like everybody power lifted when I was power lifting. And, and I'd like to think, I thought back then that I wasn't married to the lifts, but I was, you know, and so as I got back into working more with athletes, and especially when we opened iFast up, I started to come back to look, man, like all that stuff is cool. But that's icing on the cake, right? And, And at the end of the day, all that matters is context. All that merit matters is carryover. So I don't care if a dude can squat a 1,000 pounds. If he can't use that on the field or on the court or on the pitch, it's not valuable, right? It's a waste of training time. So I would say, you know, in 2008, I really started coming back more full circle. And it's just gotten my, – my stance has gotten stronger as the years have gone on, as I've really tried to expose myself to – You know, not just guys that are into the strength training side of this, you know, because there's still factions to it, right? There's guys that definitely lean a lot on strength training to build their athletes. As I've just tried to broaden my worldview and expose myself to guys that are into speed development, you know, such as yourself, Boo, Dan Pfaff, uh, Mike Young, um, you know, world-class guys like that, to guys that are really into the power and the plyo side of it. You know, two guys at our gym are really into VBT. Um, Ty Terrell, uh, Tony Giuliano, they wrote like a book on VBT. So it's like as I've started, or Lee Taft is another guy who's amazing with multi-directional speed. As I really started to kind of just take a step back, look at the big picture, and have some perspective on what does it really take to make an elite athlete. And I started to look at things through that lens. Immediately, I started to realize strength is an absolutely wonderful tool. The gym is an amazing tool. It's the place where I'm most comfortable as a coach, but that it is limited, and that you need to have a lot of tools in your toolbox as a coach if you want to make a really complete and well-rounded athlete.
1: That's great stuff, man. I I, I always really enjoy hearing about that journey as as I've I've been on that myself, and I've <laughs> I've been, it's been through those same things as a even as a track coach. I had sprinters who were lifting like who put 70 pounds in their squat. and like oh they're gonna run so fast and then they ran slower like you know yes. it's those moments you're like oh wait a second like uh, so uh that's really cool to hear man uh so just a couple more questions for you. i know the time's kind of running out but uh sure. w- just so you, you you mentioned how your your uh, paradigm kind of shifted in the lifts over the years is there anything that has happened in the last one or two years that really specifically has changed the way that you're looking at athletes and training them
0: um, you know, I don't know if there's anything major that would be like a great soundbite, but I would say like my system is kind of there, but there's always like tweaking and refining. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like, like if you've done this for 10 years, whether you know it or not, you kind of have a philosophy and a system in place. So it's not so much overhauling everything. It's more just like chipping away. I, I would kind of like liken it to a sculpture, Right. Like once you kind of have this idea or this framework and you have the big things kind of chiseled out, now it's just adding in or etching in the details and kind of like the really fine strokes. And I think that's where I'm at now. Like for me in the gym, like the strength training, the resistance piece, I'm super comfortable there. Um, When it comes to prescribing conditioning and, and making that contextual, I'm pretty comfortable there for me the, in my world, the reactive, the R4, like the speed, the power explosiveness, man, there's so many layers to that. I mean, you know, cause you're a track guy. So just think about how much information there is on linear speed, just linear speed. And that doesn't even take into account lateral speed, change of direction. Um, then we start talking about plyos and jump training and med balls. There's so many tools in that toolbox and in that arena That's something I'm constantly working on and it's something where I'm way, way better at that than I was even a year or two ago, but it's something I'm still working on cleaning up and refining um, everything from the program design perspective, how I want to lay it out, how I want to structure it to how I actually coach it and how I want to get the most out of every coaching session. So I'd say if there's something I'm still working on, that would be my best answer is I'm still trying to clean up and organize all the speed, the power, and the explosive elements of my programming.
1: Yeah, yeah, getting that art down. I think a lot of us are going to be working on that for some time, but it's like the more it's you a know, lifetime, the more... Yeah, It's a lifetime, man. It's a lifetime. I believe that. <laughs> um, all right, Mike, so you know I have to ask you this, um, but if you could alter the space-time continuum yes. and go back to yourself as a maybe young 20-something, getting just getting started, uh, what piece of advice would you offer yourself?
0: Man, that's such a good question. Whoever thought of that?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's it's funny. I did a consulting call for a young man yesterday, and he asked me this question, so I actually have a prepared answer. So I will tell you this, first and foremost. I am a huge believer everything happens for a reason. Bad, right? Like The good, the bad, the ugly, all happens for a reason, and every bit of it makes us stronger. So I don't know if I would change anything. Because where I'm at now, I've literally created like my ideal scenario. Like I get to coach, I get to consult, I get to work with amazing athletes, you know, every day. Um, I've got a schedule that even though it's, it would be crazy for anybody else, right? Like to get up, I mean, just to give you an example, I work at a lot of days, 6am and I work for an hour and then I got a couple hours with my kids and then I come into the gym from 8.30, 9 to 4.00. And then I go home and I have more time with my kids and then I work for like two hours at night. So for most people, they'd be like, that's absolutely asinine. For me, that's like my perfect schedule. I I work really well with that. But that's a cop out answer. So I'm going to give you the real answer. (laughs) Little known story. When I was in college, uh, Pete Bomarito went to Ball State. He was like two years ahead of me and he was an intern for the Colts. And Pete and I never crossed paths at Ball State, which is a shame because I have a ton of respect for him. But I wanted to intern for the Colts. I was like, this could be the coolest thing ever. I knew as soon as I worked at Ball State as a strength coach, I wanted to do that. So the opportunity was out there. Uh, We had connections. We had a relationship with them. So I submitted my stuff. And, you know, Richard Howell, who was the strength coach there at the time, still is now. Uh, just told Robert Newton, my, my professor, he's like, look, you know, this is, we'd love to have this kid. We think he'd probably be great, but you know, we're not hiring anybody right now. Just the timing was wrong and their internships were like six months long. They'd already brought somebody on. So fast forward, like a full year, maybe a year and a half. The, the details are fuzzy at this point, but when I graduated college, I didn't get my first job for six months. So literally may of Oh two until like November of Oh two. I'm just doing whatever it takes to make ends meet. I was actually substitute teaching for almost six months just to try and pay the bills and do all that stuff. And I literally had taken my first job and I'm getting ready to move to Fort Wayne. And like two days before I'm supposed to leave Richard Howell from the Colts calls and offers me an internship. And man, I wanted to take it so bad, but I didn't have somebody to go to. I didn't have like a mentor at the time to just say, look, take that job, right? Like figure it out, like take out a loan, max out your credit card, get your parents to float you some cash, whatever it takes, like take that internship because it will be worth it. But I didn't have that perspective. And so, you know, I took the job in Fort Wayne and told Rich, like, it's an amazing opportunity, but I just can't do it because, you know, I had bills, I had school loans coming due. So if I could go back to 2002, I would figure out some way somehow to take that internship because as great as my world is now, that would have been a pretty cool opportunity to have. And who knows where I would be now had I taken it. But again, if I had to do something over, that would probably be it. I would tell Richard Howell, yes, by all means, I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to come grind with you guys for six months because it's going to be a life changing opportunity.
1: Well, that's good stuff, man. I, I like uh, I like that. And I like the everything happens for a reason, too. I, I think about that a lot myself, just like because there's so many things I'd tell myself in my early mid 20s. But I'm like, you know what? I do like where I am at now. So uh,
0: yeah, I <laughs> for sure. For sure. I do not live a life of regret by any stretch of the imagination.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so time's, uh, I guess, about up today. Uh, do you want to really quick. Uh, so what's uh, your new product on single leg training and then where can people uh, check that out?
0: Yep. So complete single leg training is basically a online course that is all about online or it's all about single leg and split stance training in general. And it's everything from, you know, how to coach the lifts, from what are you looking at, from different views, from your front view, your side view, your back view. It gives all the progressions and regressions I use from, you know, if you think you got a really overweight or out of shape client, they can't even split squat. Where do you start them all the way up to your boss level athletes that want to do pistols with load? I've got my entire progression and regression for all the different lifts in there. So it's a combination of videos, a PDF manual that digs into some of the science behind single leg and double leg training, which is superior, when should you use each, program design. Basically, it's like the A to Z resource for. Training in a split stance or a single leg environment. So I, I'm biased, willing to admit that, but I think it's a really sound uh, investment on your part if you're a trainer or coach. And if you want to look look into it more, just go to Complete Single Leg So Complete Single Leg Training.com.
1: Awesome, man. Well, hey, Mike, thank you so much for being on today. A great talk. Really enjoyed having you.
0: My pleasure, Joel. Thanks again for having me, man. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate your listenership and we look forward to bringing you some great episodes in the future. Uh, if you haven't done so already, please shoot us a five star rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you're listening to the episode on. Uh, also, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They have an amazing blog on all things sports performance, track and field, and power development in athletes. They have an amazing array of products in their store. Anything from timing systems, the free lap timing system, force plates, contact grids, basically doing things like opto jump for a fraction of the price. They have PowerDot, EMG gear, myantech shorts, you name it. I mean, they have some amazing pieces of equipment that will push your training forward. We'll see you guys again next week with another great guest. Until then, have a good one.